0: From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. Two new polls from The Washington Post and USA Today have found that the percentage of Americans who say they would prefer a Democratic congressional candidate exceeds the percentage of those who would vote for a Republican one by at least 10 percentage points. It's led Democrats in Washington to wonder if maybe they can take both the House, where their chances are good, and the Senate, where they are long. I have one of America's preeminent election analysts with us today, Nathan Gonzalez, the publisher of Inside Elections, who is also Roll Call's political expert, to give us the answers. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for having me. So, Nathan, given recent history, I think it's good to take polls with a grain of salt, right? I mean, what should we make of these two results showing Democrats way ahead in the so-called generic ballot where respondents are asked to decide between a generic Democrat and a generic Republican?
1: Yeah, uh, I guess I'll start by saying something that might be provocative in that I think sometimes polls get a bad rap. I actually think that those the polls that you cited, the national generic Uh, polls are are probably accurate. Um, They might be a a little hot or a little too democratic, but I think they're accurate. But I think the thing to remember is that those polls don't necessarily matter. I mean, it tells us a mood, the mood of the electorate, but we have a, we don't have a national election in this country. We should have learned in 2016, we don't have a national presidential election. And the fight for Congress is a state by state and district by district uh, battle. And I spend, when I'm not doing a podcast or or another interview, I spend most of my time looking at polls at the district level, at the state level, and the generic ballot is not as wide for the Democrats. Uh, the advantage is not as wide for the Democrats as what uh, those national polls are. So, I mean, it's certainly Democrats can win the House. They definitely have a chance uh, to win the Senate. It's a little more narrow, but it's uh, it's not as much of a given as what those national polls are telling us.
0: Okay. Uh, fair enough. But we've had some other signals of a possible wave election, one being very strong fundraising and candidate recruitment by the Democratic, candidate, Democratic Party, and another being the relatively large number of Republican incumbents who are retiring, as well as Democrats' strong performance in special elections, both
1: this year and last. So is it all done but the ballot counting? Uh, You know, I think that the the dynamic of the election is clear. I think the Republicans are going to have a at least a bad night. But Democrats have a good night. What we don't know is if it's going to be those big numbers that we're talking about. And when we're talking about the midterm elections, I think it's important to break it up into House and Senate because I think they're still two fundamentally different things. A lot of those factors that you mentioned, the candidate recruitment, the fundraising, the special elections, you know, are almost all on the House side. Uh, We met with a candidate uh, here in the last couple of days who had raised $145,000 through June 30. And I just sort of asked uh, the candidate, like, what what's been going on? Because there are other Democratic candidates who have raised they raised one hundred and forty five thousand dollars in their sleep in, in one night, and uh, but Democratic fundraising is good, and uh, but so the dynamics not going to change. But just seeing these races shift even a few points can be the difference between a Democratic gain of twenty House seats and maybe forty or more House seats. And I think the reason why Democrats have such a better chance in the House is because there are so many more vulnerable seats. We have 76 on our uh, vulnerable Republican seats. Democrats need a net gain of 23, so they don't have to run the table. When you go to the Senate side, Democrats have to run the table, and that's why it's a little more of a challenge.
0: On the Senate side, you have uh, where not all the senators have to run for re-election every two years. The the playing field very much is skewed towards the Republicans this year. What is it, you got 24 Democratic seats up, you've got eight Republican, and many of the Democratic seats are tough ones, seats uh, in states that uh, Donald Trump won in the 2016 election, like West Virginia and Montana and North Dakota. And the Democrats don't have very easy pickup opportunities.
1: Yeah, and some people say, "Well, why is it so skewed that way?" And we have to remember that a lot of this is the class of 2006, which was a great Democratic year. Also, the, it's the 2012 class, which is another good Democratic year. Now they have to defend all those seats in 2018, so that's why the the numbers are a little bit uh, numbers are a little bit off.
0: Yeah. So, where do we think Democrats have a shot to win Senate seats?
1: Well, I mean, Nevada and Arizona are, are, have been their top opportunities for a while. Um, the next tier, there's probably of a, a argument of whether it's Texas or Tennessee. I think Tennessee is probably the next one, followed by Texas. Then it kind of drops off to Nebraska and others. Uh, but why those—just the quick math for the Senate is that if any of the Democratic incumbent senators lose, Heidi Heitkamp, Claire McCaskill, probably the the top ones. Maybe Bill Nelson, Heidi Heitkamp's in North Dakota, Max in Missouri, and Nelson in Florida. Um, if any of those lose, that means that Democrats have to win Tennessee or Texas or something to make up for the make up for that loss. Assuming they win Arizona and Nevada, so it's possible. There's scenarios in all those states. It's just not as likely as the House, I think.
0: Yeah. So why do we think um, Democrats have shots in those states? I mean Nevada. Um, is is an easy one. Hillary Clinton won Nevada. Uh, that's the toughest state, I guess, for Republicans to defend for that purpose. They have a good candidate in Jackie Rosen. Um, what about those other three states? You mentioned?
1: I mean, Arizona is a uh, is uh, the other Arizona seat, not John McCain's seat, but uh, Jeff Flake's open seat. Democratic Congressman Kirsten Sinema is the Democratic nominee against Martha McSally. Um, it's a uh, you know we have it as a toss-up. It's a state that the president won narrowly. But in this environment, this midterm environment, midterms tend to be... Um, the president's party tends to suffer in midterm elections. because a party is more motivated. Yeah, because if voters are dissatisfied with the president, they can't vote against him. And so uh, that's uh, their—Tennessee Democrats have the former Democratic governor, uh, Phil Bredesen, against Marsha Blackburn. You know, Bredesen, some people still remember him fondly from his gubernatorial days, even though that was quite a while ago now. But so that keeps them in the game. And then Texas, I mean, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat, is a, a juggernaut. Uh, he's just running in he's creating this movement that is is impressive. He's, a but young he's running guy, in Texas. Very
0: uh, handsome young guy, uh, enthusiastic, and he has the
1: advantage of running against Ted Cruz, which everyone around the country, all Democrats around the country, have heard of Ted Cruz, and they're giving him money. His his fundraising base is a national fundraising base, not just limited to the those borders of Texas. Right,
0: Ted Cruz. I mean, is uh, Ted Cruz, of course, famously. Uh, appeared at the Republican National Convention in 2016 and uh, was not supportive of Donald Trump. Is that hurting him? Is that a factor in his race? Uh,
1: you know, and that was fascinating. I mean, I was on the floor of the convention when that happened. And just to be kind of certain and right near where his his wife was had to be taken, you know, taken out of the hall because there was nervousness about her security. He was and, booed by the, uh, by the crowd. Uh, you know. So it was it was amazing. You know, will that end up hurting? It looks like the president is kind of coming around to at least tweeting and saying nice things uh, about the about the senator. I don't know if that'll be the deciding factor at the end of the day. Um you know, we'll see. It's it's a race to watch. I still think O'Rourke is a has the is an uphill battle, but yeah, Republicans should be taking it seriously.
0: So Nathan, in watching these campaigns, what
1: issues are driving them? Well, I mean, the president is driving Democratic uh, enthusiasm, those donations that we that we've talked about. But uh, that's almost behind the scenes. On an individual candidate level, Democrats want to talk about health care. If you um, take a drink every time a Democrat mentions pre-existing conditions or health care, then you'll either be very well hydrated or very drunk uh, by November. And because they feel like that's the the neutralizer maybe to the tax bill, Republicans are want to talk about the economy. Democrats are going to say, well, let's look at your premiums or let's look at what Republicans have done to your health care coverage.
0: Indeed. Here's Claire McCaskill talking health care at a recent campaign event. There is no question that the number one issue in this country right now is what are we doing to relieve the anxiety about increasing prices and the uncertainty as to whether or not you'll be able to get insurance for your child who has cystic fibrosis or for your husband who has diabetes. They want to go back to the bad old days. They want to go back to the days where the insurance companies have the right to spend as much money as they want figuring out a way
1: to not to pay that claim.
0: You're listening to CQ on Congress. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and NPR One. I'm Sean Zeller, and my guest today is Nathan Gonzalez, an election analyst for Inside Elections and Roll Call. We're talking about the battle for control of the Senate. So Nathan, uh, their chances, Democrats' chances in the Senate could be upended by just one loss, and they have a lot of seats to defend, as we mentioned before. Which races are they most worried about and why?
1: Well, it means their job to be worried about all of them. Uh, but I think you—even though Joe Manchin represents, I think, the, the state that went to the president by the largest margin represented by a Democrat, I actually think Manchin in West Virginia is in decent, is decent shape. I think we have Heidi Heitkamp, I think, is the most vulnerable Democratic senator, followed then by uh, McCaskill in Missouri or, or Nelson in Florida.
0: Now, t- let's talk about that North Dakota race. Why is she— more vulnerable.
1: I mean, the president won it handily. Uh, she's she's facing Republican Congressman Kevin Kramer, who already represents the entire state as the at-large member of Congress. Um, you know, she's well liked. I think Republicans are taking the right tactic and trying to tell voters, <laughs> not trying to make them dislike her, but say that, you know, she's out of step. Her policies are out of step or that she's going to support the overall Democratic agenda, support Chuck Schumer of New York to be the next majority leader and taking that route. um, You know, she can win. She was probably under, um, slight underdog going into the election six years ago and ended up winning a very close race. But I think Kramer is at least a slightly better candidate than Rick Burke, who she faced last time.
0: What about in Missouri? you got Claire McCaskill, but the, the state has been trending Republican, and she's got a strong opponent, right?
1: Yeah, State Attorney General Josh Hawley. I mean, he came in with super high expectations from that Republicans were setting, in part because they were trying to make sure that Ann Wagner, the Republican congresswoman, didn't run. Uh, they, they, I guess, wanted Hawley. Uh, I think what's fascinating about McCaskill is that unlike— Hyatt Camp or Manchin or uh, even Donnelly, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, uh, she doesn't appear as interested in trying to cozy up to the president. I mean, some of the even John Tester in Montana, the Democratic senator, put out a full page ad in the local newspapers with all of these bills that the president has signed. He he's there. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp will do Facebook Live outside of the White House, saying, uh, "You know, I just met with the president." McCaskill isn't really interested in that, and I, uh, you know, I think that she's in a. It, it looks like it's a dead heat, either forty-seven, forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-eight, but it's a it's a close race.
0: Right. When you look at Senate, the Senate and the voting in the Senate, I mean, Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp are people who are legitimate centrists. Uh, they they vote often with the Republicans. In defiance of their own party, McCaskill not as much, um, and Tester John Tester in Montana not as much. He tends to to side with the Democrats. Yeah, he
1: didn't support Neil Gorsuch. Uh, we'll see what happens with with Kavanaugh, but he's in that voting against Neil Gorsuch side of things. Yeah,
0: he's a he's. Uh, a Democrat, Democrat, and uh, but it hasn't made him one. One, you didn't list him as. Yeah, the, no, the I mean vulnerable. he's
1: vulnerable. I just don't think it's he's quite as. I mean we're sort of splitting hairs here on the on who's vulnerable. Um, you know he faces he also faces a statewide elected official. Tester has never won with more than fifty percent of the vote in his previous two elections. He's faced flawed candidates in those two elections. Uh, I mean it's it's a competitive race. Republicans are going to spend money. It's just not quite at the McCaskill uh, high camp level. I don't think.
0: Okay, Nathan, also this week we had the release of Bob Bob Woodward's new book, which demonstrated that a White House in disarray, and we had the publication in the New York Times of an op-ed by an anonymous senior administration official who declared himself or herself a member of the resistance. And so how are Republican congressional candidates handling
1: Donald Trump? Are they running with him? Are they running against him? Uh, I guess a combination of both. I think it's ignore him, sort of <laughs> ignore the tweets. They, they want his supporters. They need his supporters. But I think they're trying to, to trudge on in their race without acknowledging for them as
0: most Republican voters like Donald Trump. Oh, I
1: mean, President Trump is the most popular Republican among Republicans. And it's not even close. I mean, he has 85, 90 percent job approval rating among Republicans. Republican voters, so they and they need those voters to show up. That's one of the key questions of this whole election: is what do the president's supporters do when he's not on the ballot? And we saw President Obama kind of suffer from, or Democrats suffer from that under the Obama administration when in midterms when he wasn't on the ballot, some of his coalition didn't show up.
0: Okay, Nathan. The other big news this week was Michael Capuano's loss in a Massachusetts House primary. He was a ten, he's a ten-term incumbent. He lost to Ayanna Presley, a fellow Democrat and Boston city councilor. This follows uh, the loss in June of Representative Joe Joe Crowley, the House caucus Democratic chairman, um, who lost his primary to an upstart candidate, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who describes herself as a Democratic socialist. So I'm wondering, is this Democrats Tea Party moment where a very motivated progressive base Is pushing the party further to an ideological
1: extreme. What do you think? I I think we're at the beginning of it. Um, I think that these examples, you can kind of make individual excuses for each thing, but when you take a step back, uh, I think there's just a clear um, enthusiasm in that progressive and liberal base uh, that is starting to drive things and is going to push the party to the left. I think we're going to see it. Uh, somewhat manifest itself in the next leadership elections after when this Congress gets elected uh, and see what that, what, what that looks like. I think that the more of the Ocasio-Cortez or the Presleys that win, that challenge the establishment, that'll just embolden other people to say, you know, who, who cares what the leadership says? Or if I'm not the chosen candidate, I can do this because they did it. And I think that'll be, it'll, it'll snowball. It'll have a snowball effect.
0: Fascinating stuff. Thank you for joining us, Nathan. No problem. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.